0: Okay, we're going to get started. Uh, a few people will be uh, coming in, but I need to make some general announcements for, uh, because i will tell me if we don't do this right this time. Uh, these are for, uh, this is for nursing, specifically for nursing credits, so I will have to read. Uh, okay? <laughs> So uh, you have to be sure to check in. The instructions for for receiving your credit are printed, and they're up here on the table if you need to refer to that at any time. Um, You have to uh, attend 80% of the program to get your credit for nursing, Okay. Planning committee member Brian Marsh, M.D., is a consultant for Gillian Pharmaceutical. Pharmaceuticals. The planning committee member has his conflict resolved by altering his control over content about the products or services of the commercial of commercial interest. Neither of the other planning committee members or the speaker have identified major financial interests or relationships. Um, so um, with that said, um, I will turn it over to Paul. Who's going to so, my distinct pleasure to introduce an old friend in college, Donna Butterman, who is the uh, adopted New York City resident, yes. as said for most of her life, I suspect, <laughs> except for two years that she spent in New Jersey, which overlapped with you. was a fellow uh, at J, uh, now known as Rutgers. But Donna uh, went to college at Columbia, Barman, spent some time at Hunter, uh And then I spent most of her time at Einstein and Medical Center. She was uh, a resident there and then a chief resident. And I was really interested in a chief resident in social pediatrics. So that gives you a clue as to where Donna is coming from. Uh, she spent a fair amount of time, and she has spent a lot of time there, in adolescent medicine. Adolescent medicine in general, but I think one of her. Uh, Heartfelt endeavors have been HIV and adolescence. So Donna is one of the world's experts in adolescent HIV. She's done a ton of work. She's been involved with multiple major networks, including the uh, NICHD Adolescent Network, Trials Network. Uh, and you've also spent a fair amount of time uh, in, with colleagues in South Africa, uh, in particular Cape Town. Yeah. So, as I said, Donna is extraordinarily well known and versed in adolescent HIV. And to me, uh, what really shines through is her both personal and community commitment to, to care and finding solutions to really difficult problems. She's great at that. She's well funded, has been well funded, continue to be well funded. Uh, without further ado, Donna, I'm turn it over to you. And welcome to the Upper Valley. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Um, It is such a
0: thrill to be here Um, just
1: driving up was so beautiful and then last night I had the chance to have dinner with colleagues Paul, Mary, Margaret, right, and Betsy, and, um, I'm sorry, I'm Jewish, so this Mary-Margaret thing doesn't (laughs) fall off as easily, but, um, and Richard, and, um, so anyway, it's just great, and in talking to them last night, um, they made it really clear that you're a group that's done this work, working in HIV and AIDS for a very long time, so what I wanted to do was a couple of things today. One is to... Just give you an overview of what's happening with you and HIV both internationally and in the US. I don't know how much of it will directly apply, but there are hopefully some lessons and also, you know, as, as Betsy said to me, it was a chance to do train the trainer. You know, you guys will be talking about this. People will want to know. So I hope some of the things I'm presenting to you today can also be useful in your work, and then however it applies clinically. I don't know, but I'm hoping you can share that in the discussion afterwards. So, as I said, um, one of the things that really is kind of striking to me, by the way, am I in anyone's way standing here in front of the slides? A little bit. (laughs) Good, who needs that? Okay, will this get me in someone else's way over here? No? Okay. Um, is that the epidemic is continuing. We've had an unbelievable victory and it's certainly been part of the work of people in this room, including Paul, that we have virtually eliminated pediatric AIDS, new cases of AIDS in the United States, not true in the rest of the world. But for teenagers, we are nowhere near in sight of the end of this epidemic. And I'll talk about some of the reasons why. Um, what are, oh, the very sensitive. High tech here in the Bronx, it's like clunk. Um, So, I'm going to review a little bit about the scope of the epidemic um, among teenagers, why they're so at risk, talk about some elements of youth friendly HIV care, which certainly can apply to youth friendly care across the board, Um, talk a little bit about prevention with both HIV positives and negatives, including behavioral and medical prevention and then end up with some issues on on HIV testing, uh, both routine and targeted, and why it's such an important issue for many of us. Um, These are some very recent slides from the United Nations, from UNICEF, about adolescents living with HIV as a global issue. And you can see from this that all throughout the world, but especially Eastern and Southern Africa, Um, But really, India, the United States, Latin America, Europe, all have um, growing epidemics among youth. What are some of the facts of this? Well, the first is we now have the largest generation in history of teenagers. It's thought that there are 1.2 billion adolescents currently alive today. Um, So whatever is going to happen to them is going to happen on a very large scale. So, maybe surprisingly, maybe not, AIDS is the leading cause of death among teenagers in Africa. And it's the second leading cause of death among youth worldwide. That's pretty astonishing. You know, it sort of has faded from the news every day, and, you know, crises like Ebola emerge as as focuses of attention, but it still remains a major killer of youth. Um, and even that young kids, 10 to 19, um, there are estimated 2.1 million adolescents alive with HIV, and more than 80 percent of them are living in Africa below the Sahara Desert. and 250,000 new cases of HIV a year. And um, in teenagers in the world, sixty-four percent of them are among young females, young girls. Um, it's the opposite in the United States, where about two-thirds of young men,
0: and we'll talk about what some of those differences may be. Um, in
1: some ways, I have a couple of graphs throughout this talk, and this is one that should be most memorable and something you're going to take away. Look at HIV. It's decreasing in children in every age group, except the one that's going up is adolescents 10 to 19. Again, shocking and not surprising, because unless we pay attention to every population and its needs, we're gonna see a continued epidemic. AIDS doesn't go away on its own. It's too embedded in everyday life to disappear like that. Um, but I'm gonna spend the most of my talk on US youth and AIDS and HIV is not over, speaking in the United States. Overall, there are about 56,000 new cases a year and about a quarter in young people 13 to 24. And if you do the math of this, it's every hour of every day a young person is infected somewhere in the United States. And I'm shocked by that, you know, that it's still continuing and continuing at that rate. And in our hour, you know, that's one of the hours. Probably not this hour, because it's early for young people to wake up and start having sex. But, you know, over the course of the day, there's that many kids being infected. About one in six Americans, um, or about 200,000 people, don't know they're infected, they currently have HIV. And when they did study 60%, so instead of 18%, it's four times greater than that, 60% of young gay men who were HIV positive had no idea they were infected because they hadn't been tested, they hadn't been engaged in care. In New York City, um, 30% of patients diagnosed HIV positive develop AIDS within a year of being diagnosed. And what does that mean? That means they were infected for an average of 10 years and they had no idea they were infected so their own health deteriorated and their chance of passing on to this on to others was very high. And we also have a growing cohort of perinatally infected youth who are now aging into adolescence, and we heard about your kids. How many of you work with someone who was perinatally infected? Yeah, I mean half, half this room does. And you see that in many ways they have all the issues of adolescence. You know, it's the hardest group to keep on their meds, they have the most complicated medical problems right now, multi-drug resistance, finally they're of the age when they can become independent. And the definition of a perinatally-infected youth aging into adolescence is when they learn to say no. You know, the the ones who were on track and doing everything right, they're still perinatal kids. And then, you know, when they, they start to say no, which is appropriate. Um, The next couple of slides illustrate what we call the huge disproportion of AIDS. And if you look on the right, the U.S. population of 13 to 19-year-olds, about 15% are African-Americans. If you look on the left pie, which is um, youth with HIV, more than two-thirds, so four times their rate in the population. This epidemic is hitting hard on kids of color, but especially African-American youth. Um, We see this in New York. Just in 2002, we had 663, 2012, sorry. We had 663 new infections in youth in the city. And the large pie, two-thirds of it is young, gay, men, See that MSM, and everyone here I'm sure knows MSM is men who have sex with men, and regardless of what their sexual orientation is, they've had sexual exposure to other men, 32% black, higher than their percentage of the population in New York City, 23% Hispanic, about the proportion of the population, 10% white, and others where race was not identified. Females, 9, 4, and 3, so about 16% of the new cases and unknown or others is where gender and race were not specified. And whenever you see the unknown other category in CDC or epistats in HIV, you break that up the way you've, the rest of the population is, just for the best estimate. So more than two-thirds of young men of young people will be infected in New York City or young MSMs. Um, this is another way. I don't know if you like pies, you like lines, you like bars, <laughs> I'm going to show it to you all the ways and then you can see which works best for you. But we see that the group of MSM with the largest increase is 13 to 24, this red line. Here, others are in the flat line, mildly elevated, but the youth have gone from third in 2008 to second and continue to rise. And this is U.S. stats where we just see an epidemic that really isn't stopping. And why is that? Um, another way to show it: this is the bars just from again two thousand eight to two thousand ten, a twenty-two percent increase in number of cases, thirteen to twenty-four MSM. So any way you slice this, we're seeing an increase, and that's not what we should be seeing. I mean Ebola's been in the news less than a year and already it's slowing down in some countries. AIDS has been with us 30 years and we still see it rising. Um, This is a very small part of the population. If you look at sexual identity, only 1 to 2.5% (coughs) of kids identify as gay or lesbian, another 3 to 5% is bisexual. Um, If you look at behavior, same-sex only, 1 to 3%, both sexes 2 to 4%. Now, this is a very interesting thing. This is from the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Study. And believe it or not, this national study of youth and risk behaviors, they could not ask these two questions, except in seven states for all the years. So this is where politics really impacts even science. You know, we know that from climate change, but here it is, literally, is couldn't ask the question and these are kids who are in high school, not kids across the board, kids who dropped out, who may be at even higher risk. So- I think they ask in New York in New York was <laughs> one place they could ask it. It started in Boston. I think Vermont could ask it as well. But the CDC just in 2014 said, this is a question that should be asked nationally. But it's still being decided on the local level. Um, you can't be gay, you'll shame the family. Um, In some ways, this is the number one barrier that gay kids have. It creates a tremendous pressure on them. I'm sure you've met gay people, colleagues, patients who can't come out to their family because their family would be too embarrassed. Their family couldn't accept them. They would be rejected by them. And if we think about other oppressed groups, right now it's big in the news about police violence. And you think of... All the black people you've heard speak or talk on television, they say they've had the conversation with their child. What does it mean if you confront the police, what are you going to say to them? And so that's kids growing up in a culture, in a, you know, in a racist environment who've been taught by their parents what it will take to survive. Gay kids don't have that. They don't have a family member who's telling them how to survive in the world, how to take care of themselves. So it really changes it quite a bit from them to not have that family support, to not have that institutional support from their churches, from their schools. So this kind of isolation and stigma, we can see really matters. A colleague of mine, Caitlin Ryan, studied this, and she found family rejection was the biggest predictor of vulnerability in these kids' lives. So she compared the one-third of the kids who had highly rejecting um, parents who really pushed them away, with a third of the kids who who had parents who were not rejecting of them, and found three to eight times levels of adverse outcomes, whether it was unprotected sex, use of illicit drugs, levels of depression, and suicide attempts. So we have found that doing family work is incredibly important to the lives of our kids. And when we go back and we look, talk to the gay kids about how their families treated them, we see very high levels of rejection. And I think that's something that really is going to apply very much here: is that kids who are outliers for one reason, whether it's sexual orientation, gender orientation. I mean, trans kids were emerging as a phenomenon. They always existed, but now they feel comfortable. Recognizing their identity, um, need family support, and as healthcare providers, if we can show a level of caring and understanding, it goes so far for these kids. If they don't have it at home, um, sometimes you'll have a, a mother who will bring her child in and say, "I love my kid. I want the best for them. Please make sure they're safe and survive." And other times it's like, "Change this kid. You know, I can't deal with them being gay or them being bisexual." So this is a huge issue all around and in every part of the country and world. Um, When we looked at our young people who were MSMs between the ages of 16 and 23, we did this through a study, and we found this was a very vulnerable group. Um, Forty percent of them had no medical insurance. Now we're in the Affordable Care Act era. I don't know what New Hampshire has done. Have they expanded their Medicaid roles? Yes. I mean, if you look at where AIDS is most present in the South, you see every one of those countries has rejected an expansion of Medicaid. But this, you know, I was a doctor and my own son didn't have good health insurance because he didn't qualify by age, you know, once he had gone to college. So this was a very serious problem that at least we have a much better shot at right now. But sexual identity, remember by definition, these were young boys who had sex with men and that's presumably how they got their HIV. Two thirds identified as gay and one third is bisexual. But if you look at ever had sex with with females, two thirds did. So only one third were bisexual, but two thirds had sex with women. So you see that this um, phenomenon of, of men having sex with women is very, very common. In fact, it's normative. I've never been in a country in the world where it wasn't true that the gay community didn't have sex with women or the gay male community. So this is part of the bridge to young women and you know it's part of the way young women are getting infected. It's not just these older guys, it's their peers. And you know why do gay guys have sex with women or why do gay women have sex with men? Well, there's a number of reasons. One, it's developmental. You know, as part of exploring your sexuality, you go through, okay, who am I gonna have sex with? You gotta try it out. Another part of it is you're covering up. You don't want anyone to know you're gay, so you find the boyfriend. Um, you may ha- even have children as a way of covering up who you are or not realizing. Um, this is just some inside trivia, but in college, there's a phenomenon called lugs, and it stands for lesbian until graduation. And I don't know how many of you remember this, but you know, people explore, that's what college is about. You know, you explore your identity, it may or may not be who you are when you get older. But now we're seeing another phenomenon, which is the <coughs> latent late in life lesbians of women who have had their kids who come out. So I think we need to recognize that sexuality is fluid over many, many years, over decades, and. You know, maybe there are some people, I think it's sort of, you know, imprinted early on, I think there's a strong genetic component and maybe an environmental component, but people who you can assume you think may be gay aren't and people who you have no idea may be. I've been doing this work a long time and my radar or ability to find a gay person is just not on. You know, and don't you for a second think that you can identify who's gay, because you just can't. You don't know, and people's sexuality is very fluid. So that's why we always are emphasizing, ask the question. Don't make the assumption. Um, Finally, the last line on this is mean number of prior negative tests. The boys that we saw who were HIV positive had had an average of five prior HIV negative tests. So that makes us understand that we need to do ongoing testing, targeted testing, engagement of people who may be at risk. HIV testing by itself is not a prevention strategy. You need the, um, you need prevention and you need testing. Testing is for case finding. Why is it that young people throughout the world are so susceptible to STDs and HIV? Well, the Institute of Medicine a number of years ago said there were three aspects to this. Behavioral, biological, and socioeconomic vulnerability. The Behavioral is adolescence is the time of experimentation. More than half of young people in high school today have had sex by the time of 12th grade. Homophobia, gender power imbalances make it very difficult for kids to accept themselves and <coughs> assert for safer sex always. Um, and we have strong vulnerabilities. Kids who are mentally ill, who are depressed, who've had substance, who use substances, who are sexually abused, all become highly vulnerable to HIV and to STDs. And again, last night we were talking a little bit about the phenomenon of increased STDs in this population and the need to do the swabs to make the diagnosis. And people don't always tell you, you know, or aren't always aware of what they've done and aren't necessarily going to communicate it to you. So I think, again, reinforcing our role as health providers is to do the test regardless of what the person may tell us or we may think by looking at them. Biological vulnerability of females is an important part of why the average age of females with HIV is five to 10 years younger than males, and why in Africa, two-thirds of the new cases are in young women. Just like secondary sex characteristics develop on the outside, young girls develop breasts, inside there are changes taking place as well, and the cervix literally goes from a single layer of columnar cells to a multi-layer squamous epithelial cells, and that single layer of cells is much more vulnerable to HIV and other STDs, and I don't know why Um, And STDs are more likely to be asymptomatic in females, and STDs, we know, really enhance your risk of HIV, whether it's inflammatory ones like chlamydia and gonorrhea, or ones that cause ulcers like herpes and syphilis, Um, and that's one little explanation I can skip here, right, Betsy? (laughs) Why this enhances it so much. Um, And, in general, it's more efficient for HIV to go from males to females, although recently we've discovered that uncircumcised males are more likely to catch HIV during sex than circumcised males. And that's because the inner lining of the foreskin is a mucous membrane that's very susceptible to HIV. And I don't know, Paul, if you've seen it, but mass campaigns for medical male circumcision as an HIV prevention strategy. Um, And then socioeconomic vulnerabilities, the lack of healthcare coverage, um, the importance of confidentiality. Um, You know, people in the ER say, how am I gonna offer an HIV test? The mother's in the room. It's like, well, you have to ask her to leave because there has to be a moment when you can confidentially interact with the teenager. Um, Inadequate sex education. Remember sex education, how politicized it was. Just say no and abstinence only. Now we can teach real sex education, but not everyone is caught up. I don't know what sex education's like in New Hampshire schools. It depends on the community. Yeah, so, it's, I mean, just here's something that's like, you know, does the community tell us if we can teach about what rivers, you know, exist in the Northeast? No, you know, there's a curriculum. But when it comes to sex ed, a life and death issue for kids, you know, it's community control.
0: Um, My son actually told me just last night that My home sex ed curriculum was inferior to the one that he got at school. I right. was offended, but... But <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: well, you know the other lesson from that, besides your curriculum, <laughs> is that no matter how good we think we are, it's just hard. It's hard to talk to our kids. You know, we could be the best intention parents, and it's just hard. I mean, I was trying to figure out, you know, the drug talk with my son, and... You know, you're always told, well, ask them what their friends are doing. Well, he considered that, you know, I'm not going to rat out my friends, you know. So the question that finally worked with him is, Evan, what's your philosophy of drugs? And, you know, he's a heady kind of kid, and so he could say, I think this, 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 I wouldn't do this. And But my friends, you know, so it's really hard to do. I would leave out condoms, and his friends would kind of wink at me, but Evan was like, oh, come on, Ma, I'm so not ready for that. And, you know, so you don't know. I thought abstinence was a bad word, you know, that's my generation, but he wasn't ready. You know, so you have to really know how to individualize. Um, This is a slide that I think all of us in AIDS have become familiar with over the last couple of years, so this is the continuum of care. And I think this has been an incredibly useful way to codify this because it shows us where what we're doing is working and where it's not. So you see the first bar is how many people are diagnosed. In the US, about 82% of adults are diagnosed, and I showed you before that only 40% of youth, of MSM youth have been diagnosed. So that gives us the idea that's a big area we need to work in is diagnosis in youth. The other thing that was very scary was this brand new news that after all these years of the epidemic, only 25% of people in the United States are virally suppressed. So I don't know when you've reviewed your clinics, your Part C, your Part D, what the viral suppression rates are, but you know, clearly that's a target that we all can do much better on. And what's hard is it's not really us, it's our patients. You know, we can't make them do what they can, you know, want or don't want to do. Um, linked to care is another huge one in retained in care. Look at that huge drop off uh, from, you know, 66% of people diagnosed that go for one visit, but only 37% of them stay in care. Once they're in care, we're doing pretty well, we're prescribing the art, but this shows us how much the ancillary and wraparound services are key, and that's not paid for by our medical system. I mean, that's where we need the Part D and the Part C supplemental grants. And I do want to thank you deeply for one thing about this talk, Richard, which we scheduled so far in advance that I couldn't change it, but I'm missing day one of our Part C D site visit. Uh-huh. So, as, as bad as, as that is, I'm also happy to be here. Uh, so, this is, you know again the, the news is you know better than it used to be but not so good here is young people um, undiagnosed infection 13 to 24 the highest group and it goes down you know with age but you know 25 year olds were not doing so great either about a third of them who are positive today don't know it so i guess the you know the take home is that i don't know what the prevalence here is in new hampshire i'm sure it's way less than 1% mm-hmm. Um, And so it's very hard to do something when your return is going to be less than one in a hundred, one in a thousand. I don't know that this is the community where routine testing needs to take place, but it's certainly the the community where every single person who gets screened for an SDI should be offered and somehow convinced to take an HIV test. Um, Every person who is getting care and lets you know that they're having sex with men, who's a male, needs to be encouraged to get this we did it in pregnancy for pregnant women and maybe it was overkill but we eliminated pediatric aids and i think if we put five to ten years into doing everything we can you know throwing the kitchen sink at this problem we could make a significant dent and there's no on my mind not a strong reason not to um this isn't as maybe as relevant for you but Um, The ATN is the Adolescent Trials Network. It's in 10 cities throughout the United States. In 2012, we had 506 new kids. Remember the New York City number was 600? You know, but this is the the networks around the country. The biggest source of, of referrals for positive kids was other medical providers. So this is where, I mean, AIDS is a disease of everything. It's a disease of society, of this, of that. But at its heart, it's a medical problem. And the medical system has to get this right. So if you see a practice that you know could be doing better, engage with them because that's gonna make a huge difference. Um, CBOs, community-based organizations, are a source of referrals. Department of Health um, does testing in a lot of areas and referrals, but uh, the biggest one is medical referrals. Um, So we need to work much better to improve this initial linkage and retention in care. We have to monitor it. Um, if you get a referral and the person doesn't show up, that's not the end. We can't sit there. And I know we know this, but you know it's our job to continue the work, to continue the outreach. I mean, I get a call from my dentist before my appointment, and yet somehow we're treated like it's so strange that we should call people, remind them, problem solve. That's just good practice to engage people. Um, strength-based case management, what do you like? What do you want to do? Unfortunately, especially for a lot of kids who are born with HIV, they got the message that they would never make it to adulthood. They you know, had nothing to live for, That why bother studying, because you're not gonna go to college, you're not gonna live that long. But these kids still have hopes and dreams, and they still have talents, and what are they, and how do we tap into them? So we also need to do intensive outreach for newly diagnosed, and remember, it's not all or nothing, that patients are gonna go in and out of your care system and just because they disappear for a while doesn't mean we, we can't continue to try and engage and re-engage them. So I'm gonna take a minute, this is Youth Friendly Care. How many people in this room, and be honest, like and feel comfortable working with teenagers? Yay. <laughs> a third of this room raised its hand, not even. I mean I'm being generous here um, this is true not everybody likes working with teenagers it's a group that either you had a bad adolescence or your kid was hard or you're just not that interested as they say so if if you know it about yourself I promise you the kids know it they have platinum antenna they can pick up someone who doesn't like is not comfortable with them so what do you what do you do about that Well, the first thing is you find the person in the practice who likes teenagers, and you give them that job. You, you know, help them engage. So whether it's the social worker, the nurse, the doctor, someone has to be the point person because not all kids in the world are going to go to a youth clinic. You know, it just, they don't exist, and so how do we make it better for them? So you need to be knowledgeable, and knowledgeable is not about the latest music. Knowledgeable is about the issue, the medical issue, the health issues related to them. Um, You need to be non-judgmental. A big thing is, don't just hear the word and assume you know what they're talking about. They may use the word wrong, they may not understand it. Ask, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's basic patient communication, but it's super important for teenagers. And find the people in the practice who like working with youth. One thing we found very helpful is cohorting youth to a single day. Um, So, Tuesday is youth day, and that way they see each other, they're not just the only teenager in a sea of either young kids or adults who look much sicker, have a confidentiality and consent policy, seeing them separate from their parents, address issues like poverty, schools, housing, and I'm sure this one is huge here, transportation.
0: I mean, i just
1: (coughs) even driving up to your hospital, you know, you can't walk here. You've got to have some kind of transportation to get up here. And that's once you've gotten to that, you know, corner uh, gas station. You know, this is like, you've got to pay attention. I know rural areas, transportation is huge. And so who's going to pay for that? You know, it doesn't really come out of Medicaid dollars. So we have to continue to advocate for that. Um, And then empowering youth filled with HIV. Um, The first thing we always pay attention to is coping and mental health. I see you have social workers on your team. You can't do this work without addressing um, mental health issues, um, HIV care, and again, assessing where someone's at on readiness for treatment and prevention is part of the care work that we have to do. Um, For youth, the same guidelines we follow as for adults, and it's very interesting, this new push towards immediate treatment those of us doing this work for a long time knew that of course you're gonna treat. You know, HIV is an infectious disease. There's, you know, we don't take TB and wait till you're you've lost half your lung before we offer treatment. But we didn't have medicines that were good enough, that were safe enough, that were easy enough to take, and now we do. So the pendulum has swung back to immediate treatment. But A lot of people grew up in the area of you could wait, you don't have AIDS yet, what's the rush? And now (coughs) we really need to work with people on adjustment to diagnosis and readiness to treat, uh, dosing by puberty, not by age. Um, You know, you could be 14 and not have started puberty, you gotta use pediatric dosing. Adherence challenges. Um, Many teenagers are very concrete Sometimes that helps them adhere. I gotta take my medicine every day. I gotta take it. But on the other hand, it could work against them because, you know, I feel good. I take this medicine. It makes me nauseous. Why should I take this medicine? So you gotta really assess the person. Um, Disclosure is incredibly important. We have a lot of teenagers, and I'm sure you have adults, who have not disclosed this to their mother. They don't wanna upset her. She, you know, couldn't handle it. Um, but you can't take medicine living in a household with people you haven't disclosed to. I mean, the medicine, you can't hide it. It's got to be near the water, you got to have it in a way that you remember it. So this is very important and irregular routines. I know that when I travel or come the weekend, my, you know, medicine-taking behavior just isn't as good. And maybe everyone in New Hampshire is different and you can <laughs> take your medicines on time. I doubt it. Uh, but. You know, this is hard stuff, and we're asking kids and kids who were, you know, grew up in families maybe that they didn't have support to do something that's just plain hard to do. Um, so, as a consequence of all this, this is the opposite of the numbers diagnosed. Young people are the least likely to have their viral load under control. Um, <coughs> and this is some issues of family dynamics affecting perinatally infected youth. Um, if you're, if, do you remember the days when, with HIV, you took your medicine when you were really sick? You know, you waited till the end. So then a lot of people got the belief that it was the medicine that killed them. Because, you know, they took it when they were sick, it didn't save them. So if you have a parent who felt that way, it's going to be very hard for you to see the medicine differently. Again, disclosure, were you told you had this? If you were, were not told this or lied to about your diagnosis, you're not going to really believe this next generation of doctors. Um, treatment, uh, you know, association of the pills with death or with getting side effects, poor um, adherence, and then um, complications related to HIV and its treatment. Often the perinatally infected kids are the sickest kids, or the sickest people we have in care. Now, this is an issue that I know you guys are working on, which is transitioning youth aging into or out of adolescent care. And we have, we have to recognize that our pediatric systems are very supportive and we rely on families for taking responsibility. But for a child to grow up and, and move into adult care, they have to assume the responsibilities. Um, and it's our job to promote growth, self-expression, independent decision-making. You have it much easier because you have a lot of the providers that make the transition with the young people. So that's a huge thing than having to go into a completely different care system. Um, And, you know, it it was very interesting to me when I started in pediatrics. Some people go into pediatrics because they don't want to talk about sex. They don't want to do a GYN exam. And yet to take care of teenagers, you have to be willing to do all of those things. So, you know, our systems aren't always the right people to do the next level of care for teenagers. So I'm gonna stop at this moment, see if there are any questions, because the last two sections are about prevention and to HIV testing. Are there any questions or should I just continue? Go ahead. I have a question about what you're observing in the perinatal um, kids in terms of subtle neurocognitive and concerns about Uh, How that's impacting Mm -hmm. um, them and their adherence and decision making. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that's a terrific question about the subtle neurocognitive effects of HIV on perinatally infected kids. And I think it's two things. On the one hand, it's the virus definitely has caused neurocognitive problems in young people, but the other, and I think it's huge, is the socioeconomic and familial settings and expectations. So I think, you know, a lot of these kids grew up, as I said before, without expectations um, on them that they were gonna live, Um, you know, a lot of, just say no to them, don't have a sex life, don't have a partner, you'll never have a kid. I think that has triggered depression in a lot of these kids. And growing up in families in which your parent was sick or not there for you also has lifelong impacts. So I think we definitely see it, you know, we see more kids who were, you know, troubled and not all there cognitively. And I think, you know, expecting them just by age to be independent and do everything just isn't appropriate. So we do need to find ways to have ongoing support. But also it's very subtle because if you're young and you need to be independent, that's true regardless of whether or not you're cognitively able to do it. I have a nephew who has Asperger's, and you know he's 22, and he really can take care of himself on his own, yet he has all those drives for independence from his family. And so, you know, how do you facilitate and help someone keep growing, maturing, becoming independent, but also provide the scaffold of support that they need? So, I don't think it's so different with HIV, but, you know, it's a phenomenon that we see a lot in peds. And I was just on service in my hospital. Half the kids with medical problems also had developmental disabilities. These, You know, once you have a developmental disability, it goes with multiple Vulnerabilities. So I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a phenomenon we can look at in many settings. So this is one of my favorite slides because I think it captures the mind of adolescents so well. I don't think I have anything to worry about. I assume they're negative. If they're positive, they wouldn't put you at risk. You can tell a lot by appearance. And it's sort of this notion of the visual aids test. He looks clean, therefore he'll be okay. He's nice. But what I really love about this is I think it also speaks to us as providers. We do the same visual aids test. We still think we can look at someone and judge who they are, who they are, what they are, what they do. And it's just not true. There's some really terrific advances in HIV testing, you know, rapid test, oral test, but no one is trying to bring to market a visual aids test. <laughs> <laughs> I you can tell us by looking. So, um, this is yeah something. So we have prevention strategies that really leave youth vulnerable. Um, mass media promotes sex, but not safer sex. When was the last time you saw a condom man on TV or a condom used in a music video or a movie? You know, we're expecting kids to to understand this is normal and normalized, but yet they never see it in mass media. So, you know. It just doesn't work that way. We're not going to succeed at this next generation learning it um, unless we do something. Um, Now, Coca-Cola, there's not a person on the planet that doesn't know what Coca-Cola is. It's just ubiquitous. Every single place you go, there's a Coke sign. And Coca-Cola updates its marketing. You know, every year there's a new polar bear or a new polar bear joke or a new polar bear song. We don't do that with AIDS. AIDS is about sex, AIDS is about connection, AIDS is about communication, yet we think it's okay to just have you know the old stuff. And it's not, because it's just not gonna work. Um, so even sex education, parents want it, but yet it's not done sufficiently in many schools. We also need to recognize that behavior change is very difficult. Prolonged interventions are much more successful and successful programs combine knowledge and skills. Um, We now have some very exciting changes in biomedical prevention. Uh, There were three really important trials and I'm sure you've heard lectures on each of them. So the first was HPTN, HIV Prevention Trials Network. And this showed that people who were on treatment are way less likely to transmit this virus to others. Another was the Prep trial that showed that people who are and taking Truvada do not acquire HIV. And then the Microbicide trial. Um, and that showed that, in, at least in the beginning, women who take Microbicides can lower their risk of HIV infection. And now we have tools that go beyond just behavior, because behavior is hard. Um, we, these are easier to take; they cost less, but they find over and over again mm-hmm. these biomedical preventions are not going to work without adherence. So we're still back to a behavioral component to every single thing that we do. There's a funny story about the microbicide trials worked, and then the next trials of microbicides didn't really work for women. And they realized that as researchers, they never asked the women how many of you were having anal sex. So, of course, if you put the microbicide in your vagina and you have sex, you're not going to get it. But if you didn't put it in your butt and that's where you're having sex, well, it's not really going to protect you. So even our research, we think it's so smart. We spend millions and millions of dollars. But unless we understand deeply what people are doing, we're going to miss the mark. Um, and I'm sure as an ethicist, you have a lot to say about this. Um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, this you've heard about, you can reduce the risk of infection by 92%. Um, the FDA in 2012 approved this, but they only approved it for people over the age of 18. And if we look, And that's not because we think that it's gonna be different for younger boys, it's just they didn't invest the money to do the trial in the younger people and it's hard to do these trials. Do you need parental permission to give a medication to an under 18 year old? Well, you don't need it for treating STIs or treating mental illness. So now we have this huge debate going on in New York, in New York where they wanna really up the prep uh, programs and they've excluded under 18 year olds without parental permission. So remember, going back, you know, you have to be out to your parents and take your medicine. How many mothers are going to say, sure, be gay, take a pill, good luck, have a great day? That's not really what the mother's going to say to them. They're going to say, do you really have to be gay? Why are you even putting yourself at risk? I'm not going to give you permission to take a pill. And so, you know, something that seems straightforward is we leave the most vulnerable out. I'm not saying I have the answers or that the answers are simple, but these are the complexities and why adolescents remain vulnerable. Um, this is the vaginal ring. It's a, um, a, a silicon ring that women can keep in for a month. We're currently doing trials. Um, if you like it, put a ring in it. How many of you know the Beyonce song? No, not too many here, but the kids here, <laughs> <then>. <laughs> Yes. So basically, Beyonce is saying, that if you want this, I want the wedding ring. You know, so we're playing on that to, to try and sell this ring to kids. But when we designed this study, again, we had to have the kids disclose that they were sexually active to their parents. There were so many kids that wanted to do this study, but were not going to tell their mother they were sexually active. So, again, we have to go back and look at this. So, you know, in research, kids are excluded and it's complex. Um, so, this is the final section. It's about HIV testing. Um, in the Bronx, we have a 1% to 2% prevalence. So, 1% to 2 out of every 100 people are HIV positive. That's the kind of setting that the CDC recommends routine testing. Um, and New York has a law that says everyone who comes to a medical provider needs to be offered tested. Why? Well, the first is if you're tested and getting care, your life can be a normal lifespan. You can reduce transmission through taking medicine, lowering your viral load, and changing your behavior. Most people with HIV don't want to transmit it to others. Of course, we have a few disturbed people, but we don't make policy on the worst case. We make policy on the large case, at least in my philosophy, and preserves resources overall by treating people with HIV. Um, And testing is the best strategy right now to reduce new infections. Uh, Most positive youth are asymptomatic. They don't have a a medical clue that they're positive, so we have to scale up testing for youth in all the settings that they come and target it. Um, Do you have any gay youth clubs or a gay community center? Um, These are the kind of places we need to do the linkages with. And what's complex is the kids who are gonna be in a gay club may take the best care of themselves because they're willing to admit. It's the outliers who don't feel as comfortable with their identity who we need to reach with supportive care. But one of the best um, new supportive things that I've heard of is the gay-straight alliances. And they are clubs primarily in high schools, but we might also have them in um, colleges that are open to gay people and to people who love them and care about them. And it's great because you don't have to out yourself to go to that club. And a lot of times it's, it's the young women, you know, who love their gay friends or have a gay person in their family. You know, it's, they're very nice, but they're a great suggestion if people ask you, what can we do, um, to suggest the, the gay-straight alliances. Um, but for gay kids, we have to do ongoing and repeat testing um, and linkage to STI. And of course, we have to see gay kids as more than just at risk for AIDS. We have to be able to support everything about them and their family. And in New York, the law says, and CDC also says this, test everyone over the age of 13. And I was wondering about that. Why are we just testing people who are sexually active? And then I sort of began to put together the picture of this, which is not everyone tells you they're sexually active when they meet you or come into your exam or counseling room. and we all know the phenomenon of um, you know, the pregnant girl who never had sex. Because she's just not gonna tell you she did. Then we have kids who were abused, who don't think of that as sex, yet may have been put at risk. And those who were perinatally infected who may not have been told. Uh, so testing is all of our jobs. It's not routine, so we have late diagnoses. For some, this may be their only visit to a doctor. People expect their doctor to tell them what to do. And by making testing routine, we can help stigmatize it. And prevention is important, but it's not crucial. Imagine if before every cholesterol test, we each got grilled on our hamburger habits. And how many French fries do you eat? And you know how many ham and cheese sandwiches do you eat? And how are you going to feel if your cholesterol is high? And who are you going to tell? We don't do medicine that way. We screen and then we deal with what the answer is. And I think that's a really important lesson for us in HIV as well. Um, we designed this very streamlined system called Axe to show people that HIV testing, there's a limited amount of information, here it is. We advise people to get the test, we get their consent either verbally written Depending on what your state law is, we do the tests, and then we provide support for those who are negative. Great, you tested negative, how are you gonna stay negative? And we go through some things. And if you're positive, the same thing, coping, treatment, prevention. Um, It's not an endless series of things. So this is what we do to empower people to know that their clinical skills allow them the capacity to learn how to do an HIV test. We are trying to scale up testing in the emergency department of my hospital. And in the ED, people can come in with a pole through their head, and the ED has never seen that before, but yet they know what to do. You know, it's a new... T- when it came to HIV testing, somehow the doctors and nurses were like, oh, I don't know how to do that. You send in your counselor. Well, who is the counselor? Someone who studied something for two weeks, but nurses know how to talk to me. Doctors know how to talk to people, so we're trying to codify what does it take to do an HIV test, and it's within your skill set, and that's the model we used in South Africa as well, that we empowered people mm-hmm. to realize their skill set, lets them do this. Um, practice change involves buy-in, planning, training and mentoring, monitoring and evaluation, So. Um, This is an AETC model, not just the training piece, but you really need all these things. And this is the model we need to get testing to be routine out of the HIV system. We can do the care, we can do the support, but in order to get our colleagues to do testing, they have to believe they can and we need to make a plan with them. So this is work, I'm not going to go through this right now, but work we've done starting in the Bronx. Um, to South Africa on HIV testing. This um, Bronx NOSE was a very exciting program. We, we brought together all of the hospitals and clinics and CBOs in the Bronx to offer testing. Um, we showed success using ACTS um, in our clinics, and this is without any additional staff or resources. Um, getting the testing up to about 30% a year, we now have 60% of the people in those clinics tested because it it becomes cumulative. Um, Again, we were able to do it in South Africa at a much larger scale, province wide. Um, This is the Bronx nose where we, and this is just starting in 2009 all the way up to 2013. In the Bronx alone, 7,400 new diagnoses of HIV. So that's huge. I mean, that's just a, a, a mate Now, I'm not saying this campaign got all the new ones, but that's the scale that we are still existing on. And you can see that the hospitals and the community health centers accounted for the largest numbers. So we really have to get it right in our healthcare system. Uh, these are the numbers that you found. Yes. Did you project how many were out there? Um, no, but let's say it was, you know, we were getting 80%. So it would be another 2,000 that you know, we
0: missed, if not more.
1: Yeah. Um, so the last two slides are just a summary of some of the points. Um, Is a new generation of young people every five years. And if you think about it, the kids in high school today won't be there three years from now or four years from now. So we have to constantly update our messages and hopefully keep the curriculum smarter than yours and, and your son has to say. Sounds like it's easy to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to keep it smarter than yours yeah. <laughs> um, And we need to refresh our messages. We can't just sit on our laurels and say, oh yeah, we did that. Um, our mutual mentor, and for me hero, Jim Olesky, who worked in Newark, used to say, you know, we can't afford to get tired. Our patients can't opt out of this and you know, take on a different career. This is their lifetime. We can't afford to do it. So part of it is how do we keep going? How do we keep ourselves refreshed? You know, Humor, vacations, colleagueship, all the things we need to keep our own longevity. But we also need to not become complacent. Um, we have to remember that HIV is no longer feared. It's missing in action. I mean, everywhere I go, people are shocked, really? This is still happening, how could that be? These are big numbers. Um, Because it's treatable, relatively invisible, um, gay kids today think it's either inevitable or they're invincible. So we need to recognize those dualities and act on both sides of it. Sex is complicated, we can't just give people simple answers and expect them to do it. And especially for you, sex is about conversation. And if you can't talk about who you're in love with, how are you going to explore it? That's what youth sexuality is. Um, fears of disclosure, of HIV, of your sexual orientation, the importance of confidentiality, um, and in general, recognizing that vulnerable youth are not well served. Uh, Richard told me that he just went to a phenomenal panel on racism at the ethics meeting. Now, you know, how is racism not a constant topic for us given the vulnerabilities we saw, given what's in the news about police murder and not being indicted for murdering young black kids. So we have let the ball drop on a number of things that we need to constantly be readdressing. Um, and then some thoughts for the future. Um, I have really found my passion and interest in HIV to focus on scalable interventions. What works, not like what's a little piece of knowledge. Because too often we don't apply our research, and that's what I think is so crucial in this epidemic. Um,
0: we have to mobilize
1: the resources now to prevent increased costs, our health sector has to engage more, and we need a continuum from research to implementation and applying the best of what we know. Um, I had you know, dinner last night with three phenomenal colleagues and saw people on every step of this research, from. You know, inventing the ideas to making sure we have great programs to taking care of patients. And that's really what all of this takes. And, you know, for me, the outcome is the epidemic. You know, we can actually take the model of perinatal HIV and its elimination in the United States, its potential elimination in the world, and apply that across the age span. And even though teenagers are not cuddly, and they don't all look like koala bears, and they're cute, it's really important that we, those of us who love them, and those of us, remember, we all were teenagers once. And um, hopefully, our teenage kids will grow up safe and healthy, and we'll be able to do that for other kids as well. So thank you. Thank you.